Light beer, dark money. Agree on something. Politics, culture, and the intersection of faith, freedom, and free enterprise. And now, live from the Star Worldwide Network Studios, here are your hosts, Light Beer, Chris Clements, and Dark Money, Sean Noble. Welcome back to another episode of Light Beer, Dark Money. I'm Sean Noble. And I'm Chris Clements. <clears throat> Sean, good to have you back. Thanks. Good to Missed be back. you last week. Yeah, we were we ranted, but there was like this little delay that I, that I noticed on the on the uh, on the broadcast. Yes, creates a, It's not the same. It's not the same without the two of us sitting next to each sitting other. next to each other, bantering away. Yeah. Well, we're honored to have a uh, repeat guest. We have Rich Tao of yes. Engageus here with us today to talk about well, a little bit of everything, but. Rich, welcome back. Great to be back. Thank you. So you've been doing a series of focus groups across the country. What do you do these each month? Is that one? Yes, two two focus groups each month, and each time in a different swing state. And so it's been a, it's been a few months since we had you. What yeah. uh, What are you seeing these yeah, days? What's, what's going on? <laughs> Where have you been lately? And what's how do you how do you, what shifted and what has become evident to you as we are in the last you know, six and a half weeks of the campaign? So a couple of things have shifted. Um, I'd say the first thing that shifted, and we heard really for the first time this month, we did groups across North Carolina on uh, September 12th, was a, uh, a little bit of a, a bounce back for President Biden. You know, his numbers, poll numbers nosedived uh, the summer of 21 and basically remained pretty bad and pretty flat for a year. And they've been ticking up a little bit. And I wanted to know whether people had detected that and whether they felt that, because uh, the people I talked to would be the ones who'd be the reason why these numbers were ticking back up. You know, they're the persuadable voters. They voted Trump in 2016, then Biden in 20. So they're, they're your classic swing voters. And in fact, I, I asked them, I said, you know, how many of you just fit this description of you were with him in the beginning and then your support for him dropped? And then in the last month or so, you've kind of started seeing him more positively again. And it turned out a, 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 a more than half of our respondents said that they had felt that way. And when I asked them the reason, they, they started saying things like, well, the gas prices had started going back down. Mm. Um, the the uh, student loan forgiveness uh, was something they saw positively. They liked that, even if it didn't necessarily benefit them themselves. They liked the fact that he was doing that. And, and they were seeing action from him. They finally, he seemed engaged, which was really eye-opening because oh, I'd heard a, a long earful of negativity out of these people. And, and I want to be clear about something. These aren't people who are in love with Joe Biden. These are people for whom Biden is marginally better than Trump. So for them to say anything positive, that's a, a real plus for, for Biden. And I, I you know, I'm obviously uh, not everybody listening to this broadcast is uh, <laughs> in love with Joe Biden, but people should know what I'm hearing. And that's one thing that, that I'm hearing. Um, the other big thing that I've been focusing on is what the Dobbs decision means in these midterms. Mm -hmm. uh, and I spent a lot of time in this session 
asking these respondents about uh, Dobbs. So these were all, again, North Carolina voters uh, just uh, recently, September 12th. And for them, the Dobbs decision changed their calculus, at least for a number of them. And it did it in um, in a variety of different ways. One, it, it took some people who really just focus on the candidates and look at them as individuals and instead for some of them to look at their party affiliation. And I should be clear, and this is interesting too, uh, when I've been asking about this decision over the last several months, nearly all of these respondents are pro-choice. They're not pro-life. So just keep this in mind. These are people who voted for Trump in 2016, despite Trump's being avowedly Mm pro-life. So the issue didn't matter so much to them that they voted for Clinton, because they didn't. They voted for Trump and, and accepted Trump's pro-life position. So looking at this election, I'm thinking to myself, you know, abortion didn't matter terribly much in 2016. I don't know how much it mattered, particularly for them in 2020. Um, it, they, people tend not to say that they switched from Trump to Biden because of abortion. It was because of the pandemic and other things. But in this election, this midterm election, I was sort of wondering what's happening for them. And they're saying things to me like they thought the decision was too extreme. It was taking away their, their freedoms, particularly this particular freedom. They didn't like the fact that in, in some sort of extreme circumstance, a woman couldn't choose to terminate a pregnancy if she wanted to. Um, so it sounds like these people are sort of, again, avowedly, you know, abortion on demand types. They're not. They can see a fairly nuanced and have a fairly nuanced position on the issue, but they don't like the fact that, that Roe was overturned. It really bothered them. And they, in this race, a number of them said they were going to vote for Sherry Beasley over Ted Budd, the Senate race in North Carolina, uh, because of, of this particular issue. It really mattered to them. Uh, Fewer of them, although some said inflation and the economy was going to be a voting issue. And the other big voting issue for them was Trump and whether Trump was endorsing one of these candidates. And obviously he's endorsing Bud. Mm -hmm. So um, you got to be very careful sort of to understand where these people are because they're all in a somewhat slightly different position from each other. But the, the main thrust, I would say, is that abortion has risen as a voting issue and as a concern for them. I would not say it's the top issue. When I ask an open-ended question, what's the number one issue that matters most to you in America right now? Only one of the 11 people in North Carolina said that abortion was their top issue. But when I gave them a list of 17 issue positions, one of them being protecting a woman's right to choose, another one being protecting the right to life, nine of the 11 said that protecting a woman's right to choose was a top three issue for them. Hmm. So... Um, and that was the first month, by the way, where it was number one. Inflation and the economy was eight votes out of 11. So it sort of narrowly eked out uh, a, sort of a first place showing, if you will, um, abortion did as, as, a, as uh, a top three issue. Um, so things are shifting for these people. It's a very complicated calculus because, again, each person reacts somewhat differently. And we had a couple of people, I should say, in the session who said that they were sort of a coin toss on whether they vote or not. Hmm. And they were clearly uh, pro-choice. The issue mattered to them, but they don't typically vote in midterms. So it's like, well, maybe I'll vote. Maybe I won't. Um, So again, it's hard to judge exactly where this is going to go. I mean, clearly on balance, it favors the Democrats. Um, But, um, you know, ultimately what the effect is going to be, that's anyone's guess. Well, and it's a good question because it, it... Two questions. One that 
whether or not they'll even vote, because being a presidential election voter doesn't necessarily make you a midterm voter, especially if you're in this this swing crowd, because they're notorious for being finicky about whether they vote or not, and mm-hmm. you know, especially in non-presidential years. And they the, kind of make things up, make up their mind later late, in, in the cycle. Yeah. And I find it fascinating that you have seen a uptick. I mean, it's not a surprise that, that abortion has become more of an issue for many voters. Uh, but it will be interesting to see how many decide that abortion is more important than inflation or other issues well, that are typically top tier when you look at polling, because this year is the first time in many years that abortion comes anywhere near the top uh, in, among voters. And, and what exactly, can you give a little bit of color in terms of what is happening in that state in terms of abortion legislation within the state? Because that's essentially what you know, is, is going to skew people's perceptions and perspectives as maybe, well. Maybe, maybe not. I mean, one of the things that the Democrats have done a very good job of from the moment the decision was came down was saying that this is a radical decision. They're taking away a woman's right to choose regardless of where you live. I mean, they it clearly does not do that in New York or California or other or Illinois sure. or other deep blue states. But they didn't they, – they smartly – did not distinguish where that is, where, what happens in individual states. Yeah, I, I mean, they, I guess that's they tried the, to the nationalize this as this is taking away a woman's right to choose, period. Yeah, I guess that's the root of my question is that is, are you seeing any nuances in, in any of your focus groups as to do, are people making any distinctions? That's a great question, uh, Chris. I, I think. In North Carolina, the situation is that it's legal in North Carolina, uh, and there are Republicans are just a few votes away from having a supermajority, where they could impose more stringent uh, abortion laws if uh, Republicans gain the supermajority control in both houses, and they can override the governor. There were some of my respondents who were aware of that. Um, it didn't seem to be the overriding consideration for them, but there were a few who were aware of it. it hmm. But again, it wasn't like, oh, my God, you know, if we get to three here and four more there, that this is going to be radically different in North Carolina. They were looking at, I would say, to answer your question, I think in a much more national sense sure. and to who was going to have control over the Senate in particular. That, that was something that they were definitely in tune with. The other thing I would say to you. Um, and you guys know I do this every month with these candidates. I put up on the screen during the focus group unidentified official photos of the candidates. So I had 11 respondents. Eight of them could recognize Sherry Beasley. Only three could identify Ted Butt. <laughs> oh, my God. And, okay. And, and I'm not done yet. I'm not done yet. When I said to the respondents, these two people are running for an office who could tell me who's in that office now? Whose job would they take if they win the election? Zero out of 11 could tell me who their current U.S. senator is who's retiring after 18 years in that role. Well, Richard Burr was always very much a low-key type of a guy. <laughs> Fading into the wallpaper, yes. So 
that that that, that was so you get a sense of where these where amazing. respondents are on these elections and that's another thing i've been finding month over month is that unless the person is already famous like dr oz for example or herschel walker within weeks of an upcoming election most of these people can't identify an unlabeled photograph of the leading candidate for senate or governor well that points out like, once again important, you know, the man on the street right well it points out a, a very important aspect of this and that is you look at the millions and millions and millions of dollars spent on tv ads in each of these senate campaign states where there's senate campaigns these are the voters who make the difference in these elections they're clearly not watching tv because if you had if you're in north carolina and you watch tv you know who these people are sure because you see their ads constantly yeah Um, well it's, it's interesting so most of these people do get news from television um, and also online. So they 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 are targetable. They're, they're getting them. All these people get these their news from a variety of different sources. A number of them get it just from local news sources, local TV uh, uh, stations, for example. But to me, what's so stunning about this is that either they're seeing the ads or they're not. And if they are seeing the ads, are they paying attention? Right. Yeah. You know, are, or are they speeding through the ads? Um, you know, fast forwarding through them. Um, are they just zoning out? Are they looking at their phones during commercials? I think there's just a lot of, to me, I'm just so intrigued by this because it's an endless phenomenon of people not knowing who the candidates are in, in elections. And I saw the same thing during the, um, the Democratic primaries before the 2020 election. People had no idea who some of the most famous politicians in America are. <laughs> to, not be, to not be able to identify Bernie Sanders, for example, or Elizabeth Warren, again, you know, again, some of you like or dislike them. I mean, they're famous, right? I mean, to us, they're famous. To people listening to this, they're famous. Whether <laughs> we you have like or dislike them, though, <laughs> we're not normal. So, but that is fascinating. Anyway. That is, and that is. I but mean, they, it, but it, it, we've talked. We talked about it with David Schweiker here a couple of weeks ago that you know going after those persuadables, those, those the swing voters, which you um, highlight so spectacularly. Um, politicians forget this. You know, and they it it seems like the politicians that that, that fall aside or or lose an election, they focus so much on their party, focus so much on on the people who will vote for them and not go after folks like the, you know, the the concerns and and the issues of of swing voters and and the persuadables. Yeah, it's it's remarkable to me. And um, it just shows the chasm between the political class and, and everybody else. And you kind of understand why so many people are so frustrated. And because the dialogue is just, it's, you know, they're, it's out of sync. Yeah. Well, absolutely. Well, m- most people say, well, my, you know, my representative doesn't care about me. He doesn't, he doesn't understand who I am, what, what, what my life is like. And, and it could have to do with abortion, could have to do with inflation, could have to do with any number of different issues. And, and the majority of the time they're right. <laughs> they're right you know the most politicians are not focused on persuadable people who look at an election the last two weeks of a cycle and finally start paying attention and that's yeah. and that's just the sad part of our body politic now uh, rich you were in north carolina most recently yeah. where were you the month before that florida oh okay Interesting. What do we know from Florida? What was what was your big takeaway from there? My big takeaway was that these swing voters do not care for DeSantis and do not care for Rubio. 
Um, they both carry a lot of baggage. So um, I would not be surprised if these elections for those two those two positions are closer than people expect. I mean, the polling is showing close races. Um, I would not be surprised that if these are both very close races down there. Um, Rubio has the advantage of being better recognized, at least at the time I did the groups. Nearly all of them could, could identify a photo of Rubio. About half of them could identify a photo of Val Demings, the Democratic congresswoman who's running against him. Mm-hmm. Uh, Charlie Crist and uh, Ron DeSantis are very well recognized by people in Florida. They know who they are. So um, that's also going to be, I think, a pretty close race. And there's just, a, there's just a lot of frustration in particular with DeSantis. And by the way, these folks do not want to see him as president of the United States ever. Right. They specifically asked about that. And it's not because they love him so much they want him to stay in Florida. <laughs> they, don't, they, they, don't, they don't care for him. Um, so I want to sound like Debbie Downer to a more conservative audience here, but I, I've been hearing just a lot of frustration with the Republican candidates across the board throughout all of these sessions. And it, I, it, again, it's not because of a love of the Democrats, but it's much more frustration. I mean, what I heard in April with, in Pennsylvania with Dr. Oz I don't know if I did a show with you after that, but one of the respondents described him as the TV character Dexter. <laughs> oh, jeez. <laughs> wow. Oh, yeah. So, um, and, and, and when I asked for adjectives to describe him, they were just relentlessly negative. So, yeah, well, you know, it's, it's tough. I mean, but, but right now, I'll tell you, Fetterman is getting pilloried right now on, on crime in Pennsylvania. Right. And it's Oz and the Republicans who are going after it. So I'm curious to see what impact that has. And also, Fetterman has a lot of issues, obviously, with his health. Yeah. And mm-hmm. we haven't had a press conference with his doctors telling us that he is capable of serving a grueling six-year term as a U.S. senator from the most competitive, arguably most competitive swing state in America. You know, that's, that's a tough, uh, tough position to have. And so I think there is a lot of vulnerabilities that Fetterman facing. And they hasn't really had to own up to while Oz was failing to attack him. Now Oz and the Republicans and outside groups are attacking relentlessly. I'm curious to see whether that moves Fetterman's numbers at all, especially well, in a place like Pennsylvania, where crime is a huge issue, particularly in and around Philadelphia. Yeah, it, Fetterman's problem, I think, at this point is that Joe Biden is president. And what I mean by that is it's not the lump on the back of his neck. No, it's the... <laughs> The question about his mental capacity is a much, it looms much larger as a result of all the questions about the mental capacity of the occupant in the White House. This, this would be less of an issue, I think, well, had we, if but, we didn't have a Biden presidency right now that was in question about, you know, is he all there? But also the severity of his health is... It seems like it's being dismissed, and that's that's unfortunate. It's unfortunate for him. It's unfortunate for the electorate because stroke stroke is a major major um, illness, and 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 it's it, it's something that changes your entire life. Your your entire brain function is is either forever changed, or you can you can absolutely you know rise above it over time. But as somebody myself who's suffered from silent stroke. And has had to battle through some of these issues. It's not a full. I've never had a full blown stroke, but I, I can only imagine what. And I'm not defending Fetterman as a candidate per se, but I can only imagine how difficult it is to try to give a speech. 
or, or tr- try right. to put a couple words together. And, and you're seeing him on, on, on some of the television coverage. He's blanking out or he's having a hard time finding the next word. You know, I'm watching that. I get that. Yeah. I get that because there was a time in my life several years ago where that, a smaller, you know, a smaller incident happened to me. And so he's had a full blown stroke. He shouldn't be running for public office. There's no way he can, to your point, there's no way he can do this job for, for six years. And, and Democrats are kind of dismissing it like, oh, well, it's, it's really just an elected office. So he'll be able to get the care he needs. It's like, no, this, this running for the U.S. Senate and then being a U.S. senator is a big deal. It should be a big deal. And, and people who dismiss it do so at their peril. And, yeah, and hopefully I mean, the, the, the electorate in, in Pennsylvania will recognize that. Yeah. Well, I mean, the, the, the Democrats had their choice in the primary. They could have chosen sure. Connor Lamb, who's a very moderate Democrat, former Marine, chiseled good looks from the western part of the state, uh, speaks absolutely flawlessly, clearly and beautifully and eloquently. And I think he, he ultimately would be a much more difficult opponent for Oz than oh, Federman's proving to be. I think Connor um, could have won that, that seat for sure. Yeah. For sure. I don't even think we'd be having this discussion. Connor Lamb's got to be just shaking his head right now going, what in the world? Yeah. This shouldn't yeah. even be a contest because it wouldn't be. Well, and he was a guy who was respected by, I mean, everybody, right? Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, well people respected. talk about the challenges of Republican candidates. Uh, Democrats have done, uh, had some challenges as well. Of course. So... Yeah, what Fed, uh, Fedman won people's hearts in Pennsylvania. That was the thing, for p- particularly people far left. Yeah. Um, you know, and the other thing that Fetterman benefits from, and we've seen this just very quickly on Fetterman, um, is that to me, he looks like a bouncer outside of some club. And so someone who doesn't know much about him, but just looks at him, will think he's much more conservative than he is. Yeah, great yeah. point. A- yeah. And that's something he's that I think is guy. really undervalued in the political discussion. But I've had focus group respondents look at him and go, oh, this guy's got to be, you know, he's got to be a Trump guy. Look at him, you know, with the tattoos and wearing the hoodie. Uh, <laughs> and that's, it's just, he's created this persona, which is confounding to a lot of people. And is, I think, ultimately a cruise to his benefit. But um, it won't, it, whether he pulls it off or not, who knows? Yeah, yeah. Th- that is a great point. I did not even consider yeah. that. And Oz, by the way, I watched a speech of his on C-SPAN the other night. This is what I do for my fun time. Um, <laughs> um, I watched back-to-back Oz and Federman speeches on C-SPAN the other night. Uh, the, uh, Oz gave to me what was a far better stump speech than I ever expected. I, I know he's telegenic. He's got a lot of experience. But he gave was a really solid speech. It showed, first, he was eloquent. Second, he had a command of the issues. He had the speech not only... Uh, well thought out in terms of what he wanted to say, but the sequencing of his arguments and the way he pulled them together, it was a very, very solid speech. It wasn't sort of a barn burner, stem winding type of thing, but it was it was well received and he was clear in a way that I thought was surprising for a political novice. Um, and so it wouldn't surprise me if Oz does better in this election than people think. Again, too close to call. Yeah, sure. And, you know, it's interesting you bring up Florida because there's a great article in the American Spectator uh, to I think today by Larry Thornberry highlighting this very issue. And one of the things that he highlights specifically is the fact that Rubio is at a cash disadvantage and has not done a good job of really defining um, Val Demings at all. And she's had, she's been on the air for now blanking in the airways for, for some time. What other deficits do you see in that race 
you know, Republican versus Democrat. Well, so what's really interesting to me is that Rubio came out and endorsed and became a co-sponsor of Lindsey Graham's abortion bill mm-hmm. last week. Um, and Val Demings, uh, if she's on top of it, will go after him. I mean, obviously, you sure. saw what happened in the mainstream media with that bill and how it was seen as a as a wedge to separate Graham from a, a bunch of other Republicans in the Senate. The fact that Rubio lined up behind Graham is really intriguing to me. So, you know, Rubio, I guess, feels like he knows his electorate well enough to be able to take this position and not get pilloried for it. But you're talking about a national 15-week ban of abortion. Um, I think that's given where the polling is on this. You know, about 60-some percent of Americans think abortion should be allowed in, in all or most cases. And I don't know how, as a senator in a swing state, you take that position that, that Rubio is taking without taking in some incoming. It just it seems to me like a vulnerability for him. Um, and Val Demings, obviously, being you know former chief of police, um, being serious in, on crime, obviously, I think it's a tough thing to go after her on that, on that issue, which is a huge issue also in Florida. Um, so I don't know. I, I just I think Rubio is going to have a real challenge here. And fundraising is an issue, which it shouldn't be for yeah. a guy who's been in the Senate for 12 years, running for a third term. I mean, he should be swimming in cash. Absolutely. Um, that was that was the biggest surprise by, of the article for me, that, that he was at a huge cash disadvantage already yeah. going into the general. And that shouldn't have been the case. I mean, intuitively. Right. Yeah. So, Rich, no, done, all great points. You, you did a group here in Arizona within the last few months, right? I did Arizona in June or July. Yeah, that's hot summer months. Good, glad you did it by Zoom. <laughs> yeah. It was a little warm there. Yeah, it was. <laughs> Tell us a little bit about what you uh, your takeaways from that. Wow. Okay. So, um, <laughs> do we want to hear this? Uh, well, it was yeah, before the primary, so yeah. it, it's probably there's probably some nuances that have changed, I would guess. But yeah, well, there was a general significant lack of um, a familiarity with most of the candidates, even even with your incumbent senator Kelly. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was, I think, a, an issue right there. Um, I asked specifically about a couple of the ads and comments made by. Uh, two of your candidates, um, Lake and Masters, mm-hmm. um, that basically said that uh, the 2020 election was stolen. And it was probably not a huge surprise among these Trump to Biden voters, who obviously all voted for Biden in 2020, that they thoroughly disagreed with the notion that the 2020 election was stolen. Um, and they were troubled by the fact that candidates were making that argument. Um, I had one person who said they trusted Lake, having seen her on TV for so many years, and that this probably wasn't a consideration for him, but he was the exception. I think for most of these people, um, sort of the election was stolen argument and, and still making it even two years after the election was over just isn't a winning argument. And this right. is something I think I should, I should sort of stress for you and for your listeners. Part of it is, well, if you think, you know, you look at the evidence that Biden won and you and you, cut, you come to the conclusion, well, it wasn't stolen. So, like, why are you making an argument that's patently not true? That's part of their their thinking. Mm-hmm. The other thinking is, and, it's, and I'd say it's arguably 
Even more important, why are you relitigating something that happened two years ago? Yeah. yeah. What are you going to do for me now? Right. And, and I think that's where you get into a lot of hot water where you, when you embrace former President Trump so tightly in an attempt to hold on and grab onto his staunch supporters that when you get to talk to the people I'm talking to, these swing voters, this is really off-putting. And I think these, they're, they're, these are folks who are future-focused. They are suffering. And I, we haven't spoken yeah. much about this yet. We really should um, over inflation. Yeah. Even despite the fact that gas prices are coming down, they're still complaining bitterly about the grocery prices and prices for other goods, that that's the conversation they want to have. Uh, and oh, by the way, I've been telling you a lot about what the Republicans are doing wrong. Let me tell you some stuff about what Democrats are doing wrong. When I ask these people, what do you see the government doing to help bring prices down, inflation down? The response is, not a single thing coming out of the White House. The only thing that they can name is the Federal Reserve raising interest rates. Which so isn't necessarily the, a good thing. <laughs> yeah, well, but, but for the, yeah, when I asked them, like, what are you doing? The response is that. Yeah, we talked about it last week. This, I mean, Arizona is ground zero for inflation. Yeah, I mean, 13%. Here is up 13%. Yeah. So the, well, the gas prices are not coming down. Going back to your much. point about the stolen election issue, I think you're exactly right. With most voters who are not Trump loyalists, it is off-putting because it's like, what are you doing for me now? Because that has no. nothing to do with my life right now. And your point, people are hurting. Uh, this makes the Democrats very vulnerable if Republican candidates take advantage of this situation, saying. This is what I'm going to do to make your life better because these policies by Biden and the Democrats have been a failure yeah. and they're ruining the country. It's a pretty simple argument. I wish more yeah. of them would make it. Yeah, no, sure. I agree with you on the, the fact that, they, that, that that would be advantageous for them to do. I think the thing that's been hard, because I also asked the question, well, what should the government be doing to bring down prices? And I get a lot of blank stares. Like they're <laughs> not sure what can or should be done. And that's been a really intriguing thing to me, not just in Arizona, but across the board in all these states, is there's just a real uncertainty about what can be done. Because when you ask them what's causing it, they're not blaming Biden for inflation. They're blaming the pandemic and the, 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 the supply chain disruptions that came out of it. They're blaming the fact that people aren't uh, holding jobs, that they're voluntarily leaving the workforce, um, and that people, can't, people aren't working, so it's more expensive to do things, to buy things, to buy services, and so forth. And they blame Russia. And, mm -hmm. and the whole issue around gasoline and energy generally. So there's a lot of different people that they and entities they blame for why prices are high. And President Biden is not anywhere near the top of the list. So that's part of the reason I think they have a hard time saying, well, I, he, you know, he should do A, B and C. You'll get some people who are conscious of the energy market saying, well, we should, we should be doing more exploration and, and extraction here in the U.S. Um, but it's not a lot of people who say that. And I think Republicans, this is an opportunity on the Republican side to make some compelling cases as, well, what would you do on inflation if you were in charge? And I think that's what's not getting through to these swing voters that would be compelling if they're simple and understandable and not expensive to do. So anyway, just for what's, it's just it's an odd conversation where so many people are so obsessed with this problem, so concerned about this problem and so lacking in an understanding about what they think should be done to address it. Well, it does give yeah, they us, just know they're living it. Well, it gives Republicans an opportunity to create the solution. Exactly. You know, it's a if, if you get the blank stares, it's a blank slate. Fill that void with we're going to become energy independent again. We're you know, we're 
the list of things yeah. that, that you can I, do. I want to change the discussion just a, just a little bit. And we've had a lot of uh, news about immigration in, in the headlines lately. Is that rearing its head in any of your focus groups? Concern about immigration? <sighs> Barely. Barely. There's always one or two who say it's, the, it's their top issue. And it's their top issue, not because they want more of it, but because they want to stop it. Sure. Um, but um, it is it is not a, a, the key driving issue in this campaign. Um, not not at all. I mean, again, it matters. But when I ask people, give me their top three, I get one or two votes from one or two people. It's it's not it, it's not driving them. Yeah. And that could be a danger for the Republicans in overplaying their hand in terms of that their relentless focus on on immigration in terms of yeah, ginning up their own base probably the, i mean i think that and that's fine there is there they need to find a balance i think here in arizona is obviously more of an issue than in other states absolutely um well it was I, an issue in in uh, martha's vineyard last week <laughs> <laughs> well, for all those 50 people who uh got the red carpet treatment yeah uh, and, and, and then escorted and to, escort, and then escorted and out. Escorted to Cape Cod. Oh, we don't, more we don't actually want there. you here. Go away. <laughs> uh, oh my yeah, goodness. I think that the the governors who have sent and our governor has sent uh, illegal immigrants off to Washington D.C. and to New York um, and to New York. And Abbott's done it, and obviously DeSantis has done it. I, for some reason, DeSantis doing it got more attention than anyone else who'd been doing it before. So. <laughs> um, but I, I don't know that that really is going to impact the election. I mean, I think it exposes the left for the hypocrites that they are. Uh, but that's I, I, I would guess that your swing voting, swing voters in the groups that you do may not even know this stuff exists because they're not seeing it on. They don't watch that kind of news. I don't think yeah. this is being covered on local news in North Carolina. Probably not. I mean, the thing about this. I- I should share with you at some point my highlights reel of what swing voters don't know, um, <laughs> which which I also title the you'll want to move to Canada after seeing this video. <laughs> so so there are things that, that get through, like they all know that Russia inv- invaded Ukraine. They all know that Roe v. Wade was overturned. Um, they know that Mar-a-Lago uh, received a visit from the FBI um, that they that they hear. But when you get into some of the legislative stuff, still no little or no awareness that there's an infrastructure bill, little or no awareness that there was this so-called Inflation Reduction Act. Virtually no understanding about the sort of the day-to-day movement of issues within Congress and sort of what's being teed up and what's being worked on. So it's very hard to break through on things that are process-oriented or even results that the administration just didn't spend enough time, at least probably from their perspective, in promoting. Mm-hmm. And um, it's, it's intriguing to me that things that you, I look at and I go, wow, you just spent another trillion dollars on this or another trillion and a half on that aren't even part of the political conversation, uh, which to me in some ways benefits the Democrats because they can slide this stuff through and Republicans unless they're blaming the Democrats for this and saying it's a driver of inflation, isn't part of the larger conversation. And I think that's a golden opportunity that Republicans are missing here. I mean, to name a bill, the Inflation Reduction Act, right, mm-hmm. that, has, that in terms of its, its provisions will 
do nothing in, really in the short term to bring inflation down is arguably a golden opportunity for Republicans to point that out. Right. You know, and, and the fact that it, they want to bring prices down, but in order to bring prices down, it requires you to have to buy things that you wouldn't necessarily need or want to buy, like a new dishwasher, for example. Right. <laughs> so to me, there's... An, yeah, I mean, it, we go down the list, right? I mean, certainly people who intend to buy those things will benefit from an exceedingly generous law that has incredible rebate provisions in terms of the dollars you'd get back. I recently did some focus groups on this for another client, and I saw this. Once people are aware of this, they find it almost hard to believe how generous these things are. But from a Republican point of view, that's an opportunity, right? Yeah, yeah. And it's, it's all these giveaways. And people are concerned because they know that when you give away stuff, that ultimately it raises prices and it comes out of their own pockets. And that very basic economic argument, I think, is just not is not being made to full effect by Republicans. Right. No, you're Agreed. absolutely right. Agreed. So, putting on the prognosticator hat. <laughs> oh no! <laughs> here we are, six and a half weeks away from the election. Yeah. What's People, your best guess? I mean, we're not going to hold you to any predictions, but do Republicans take the House? What's the range of seats? If so, and what does the Senate end up? Oh, boy. So one of my clients sent me this morning some recent news about how Republicans seem to be bouncing back in tight races like Ron Johnson in Wisconsin, uh, where he seemed to be behind and now he seems to be up by a point or two. I mean, at the end of the day, this is – ask me this the week before the election. I'll have a better sense of it. Sure. I think right. at, at this point, you know, six, seven weeks out, it's a coin toss. It's going to be very close. I, I tend to be, at least I'd say in, in the House, I think it's still likelier to go Republican, but by a fairly narrow margin, you know, 10 to 12 seats, mm-hmm. maybe. Um, in the Senate, in, in the Senate, I, 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 saw, I have this nagging feeling. It's either going to be extremely close, like it will remain 50-50, or it'll be a sort of wave of people being fed up with either one side or the other. Mm-hmm. I, and it could be, you could easily see three, 52, 53, 54, like a mini Either wave. direction. Six, yeah. But it's going to, it'll not, I, I find it sort of hard to believe that it's going to be like a, a splitting the difference where some of these democratic challengers of incumbents um, win and some lose. I kind of see them all kind of marching the same way. Like what happens to Rubio is likely to happen to Johnson, for example. Um, and either they'll both win or they'll both lose. Yeah, that's um, a great point. I just, I find, yeah, I just got, I just have this weird feeling. And the other thing we don't know is that um, Kevin McCarthy's coming out, I think, uh, tomorrow with his sort of updated version of the contract with America. Right. So my question is if he polled on it, which I imagine he did because he's very conscious of public opinion uh, research, are these things that people, like the swing voters I'm interviewing, do they really want them? Mm-hmm. Are they really supportive of these? Things? Are these like 90-10 type of issues that yeah. Republicans can get themselves around and, and swing voters, and even some Democrats around? And then, of course, once they put it out there, do they promote it? Is it seen as something that's unifying for the country? Right. You know, Newt Gingrich made the contract with America. I lived through it. You lived through it. He made it a very clearly unifying, simple to understand 10-point list of all stuff that scored you know, 75 or 80% approval on all of it. Right. Is that, is that what this looks like? 
or is this stuff more complicated? Is it more intricate? Are people going to have a hard time understanding it? Are they going to even bother listening to it? I think there's, there's a, if you're going to do no, this, you, you can't go in halfway, right? Yeah. So my question is, and I plan to ask about the contents in my next focus groups, which are going to be, again, with Pennsylvania voters, different groups than I spoke to before um, on uh, October 11th. I'm dying to ask about this. Yeah. Like, have you heard about this? What do you think of these things? Um, you know, and, and where do you stand on? I think there's a huge question there. Yeah, I, I think that because news consumption is so disaggregated in this day and age, it's going to be hard for him to get the kind of attention that Newt did with the contract with America. They've got a lot of television coverage at the time, but they also had it in Reader's Digest. And back then, Reader's Digest was read by tens of millions yeah. of people. Some was, of our yeah. listeners may not even know what Reader's Digest is. That was, that was a different world. God, yeah. was that that long ago? It was a different world. It was. It was. It, 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 it was. But that's like, see, like, my, my point, though, it's Sean. It was 30 years ago. Whole, yeah, it was almost 28 years ago, right? But, the, but the, the thing about it is we have such amazing techniques to micro-target today. Yeah. Why isn't one party figuring out how to get a yeah. message through to the majority of these people? If, if I can find them for a focus group, they should be findable by either <laughs> they, party. They are findable. Both. Clearly, you're proving that they're findable. Yeah. Well, <laughs> it's, it's because they live in their own bubble and they live in the bubble, as most candidates do. And we've talked about it ad nauseum in this show. They live in the bubble of their own consultants and their own consultants are, are pushing something that's going to make the consultants a lot of money. And it's not, a, not about actually going out and talking to the electorate. And knowing what they want and understanding what their needs are. I mean, we, again, I go back to we had David Schweikert on here about two or three weeks ago, and he told a story of going out, knock, you know, he, he does big boy polling, as he talks about it, <laughs> big boy polling, and, you know, filters through it. And then he goes out and talks to the very people that you're talking about. And, and guess what? These are people who have never seen Republicans before, and he's going go to go talk to them. But they're, but they're innately conservative. They agree with, you know, the issues that 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 are important uh, both to their families and, and and to the country. But they've never they've never talked to anybody before, and and that's the type of thing where where your focus groups and what the, the work that you're doing is vitally important for for both sides. I mean, yeah. go talk to the people who you need to go talk to and persuade them based upon their issues and their concerns. It's literally the people who, in close elections, will in fact make. The the determination of they who make wins. the final decision. I mean, you're talking to these people every month, Rich, and we appreciate the insight that you give us from that because, as frightening as it is, yeah. And, and I do want to hear that that uh, <laughs> you, this will make you move to Canada, uh, <laughs> you know, real. I'll, I'll email you the uh, clip. Email you me the watch clip. It. We can watch it. They <laughs> will even post it up there. It'll make me weep for America. Yeah. I'm sure. Well, every time you see the man on the street thing, you tend to. Oh, that was, yeah. yeah. Jay Leno's Man on the Street right. was the most brilliant thing ever. Rich, any any uh, takeaways as we uh, wrap this up? I'm sure, you know, we'll have plenty to talk about after the election and we can explain what happened. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, my, my last takeaway is that candidates matter. Mm. Candidate mm -hmm. quality matters. And to me, that's going to be a major deciding factor with these people because so many of them like to tell me, I don't vote the party, I vote the candidate. And if they see that the candidate just isn't able to carry his or her water, then they're likely to bail on them, even if they might agree with them on a variety of issues. And so I think it's just important, really important for 
your listeners to understand that if you nominate people who just are vulnerable, they're vulnerable because uh, they don't speak well, there's an intelligence deficit, um, they have extreme views that are easy to, to, uh, to exploit, that that really matters in races. And we're seeing that around the country this year. And I think we have to be hypercognizant of that fact because um, it's not just swing voters voting in lockstep because they're not lockstep voters. No. Right. Great. Well, thank you, Rich. Yeah, thanks, Rich. We appreciate your insights. We'll be watching this carefully and uh, we'll, we'll have you back after the death settles and we can <laughs> kind of do the recap. <laughs> after the sawdust settles. Yeah. Well, thanks but, for having me, guys. It's been great. Yeah, thanks so much, Appreciate Rich. you and uh, have a great one. Take care, you everybody. Too. We'll see you. Bye.